Amen. Let's give God a hand clap. Happy Resurrection Day. Uh, I have this little contraption right here. Uh, please, before you leave, scan this with your phone. Just take a picture of it. It'll take you to a link on our website, give you more information about our church. Don't forget to do that before you leave. That way, nobody can say, Jeff, I didn't know what was going on. Now you know. There it is. Okay? Deal? Thumbs up? All right. That's Bill will know what's going on. The rest of you, I'm sorry about your luck. Everybody looks great. Everybody feeling good? Yeah, Annie is. I had a big week this week, so I'm extra excited. Uh, the birth of my son, Jeffrey Cruz Gaines. He's a handsome guy, isn't he? He was born eight pounds, two ounces, 21 inches long on Tuesday. Tuesday the 12th. Thank you, Nicole. It, yes, I'm operating on not much sleep. Uh, Erica is at home uh, with my son, and they're both doing well. And uh, everybody's great. So thank you for the prayers and the kindness and all the congratulations. And we're excited for everybody to meet him, uh, which will happen soon. And you can pass him around and everything. Don't ask Erica. Just do it. No, don't. I'll be in trouble. Don't do that. Next Sunday, we're going to move to one service, which I'm super excited about. Uh, service time next Sunday, beginning next Sunday, will be 10 a.m. So mark your calendar, set your alarm clock. Some of you are 11:15 service people as it is. So next Sunday's going to be extra hard, but just try and get here. And then make plans to hang out after service next Sunday. We're going to have a family day, working on getting some food trucks here. If you've got any leads, let me know. Uh, but we're going to have inflatables and be a lot of fun. If you're not a food truck person, feel free to pack a lunch for you and your family, but just make plans to be here and let's hang out and enjoy what looks like it's going to be a beautiful day next Sunday. Uh, today, I want to talk to you about the resurrected king. We're going to look at Acts chapter 2. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, if I had a subheading for today's message, it would be the lost meaning of Easter, the lost meaning of Easter. Uh, I had a, a buddy that his uh, child was really struggling in school, um, acting up, misbehaving, and really doing poorly on his grades, especially math. He was flunking math, just doing terrible. And so the family, they started looking around town, and they found a good Catholic church there in their community that, that did, does really well with, with students like theirs. And so they enrolled him in the school, and immediately they could tell a huge difference. He'd come home every day, and he'd do homework until like midnight. He'd wake up before school and do homework. I mean, he's just killing it with his studies. And they got his first report card, and he got all A's. He got 100% in math. And they were blown away. They were like, what in the world? So they went to their son, and they said, can you explain to us what has motivated you to work so hard in this new school? Why are you doing so well? And he said, well, I knew this school was serious about education. When I walked in that first day and I saw they had nailed a man to a plus sign, I knew. <laughs> a lot we know about Easter. We know about Jesus saving us from our sins. Uh, we know about Jesus making us a way to get to God and making us right with God. And those are all powerful points about Easter. All those things are true. But there is a huge component of Easter I think many Christians are missing out on. And I'll be honest with you, I was baptized when I was 16 years old. I didn't grow up in church, didn't have much of a church background. I didn't know hardly anything about the Bible. But some reason, the Lord called me to go into ministry. So I went to Bible school. I went to four years of Bible school. I went to three years to get a master's degree. Done a lot of study in the Bible. But it wasn't just until about two or three years ago that I was introduced to the topic that I want to talk to you about today. 
And being introduced to this topic has revolutionized my faith. It has revolutionized the way I look at the Bible. It's revolutionized the way I interact with the world. And I pray that you'll catch a little bit of that today and it will bless you the way it's blessed me. So we're gonna look today at Acts chapter two. Uh, This is the first recorded Christian sermon. We actually have a transcript of it, which is really cool if you think about it. And uh, this was written, this was, this was preached, this sermon, 50 days after Jesus was crucified. It was preached by a man named Peter. Peter was one of Jesus's followers, probably one of his best friends. He walked around with Peter for three years, or Peter walked around with Jesus for three years. And uh, 50 days after Jesus was crucified, they all assembled there in the city of Jerusalem. Thousands of people were there for one of the biggest festivals of the year. And Peter gets up, he gets everybody's attention, and he preaches the very first Christian sermon. So I want to read part of the transcript Uh, that Peter preached on that day. So let's all stand together in honor of the reading of God's word. We believe that these are inspired words of God. That's why we stand in honor of it. It's not just a story made up, uh, preserved for us. We believe this is history, and we believe that these words are living words, and they have something to speak to all of us, no matter where we come from or what we've got going on. Amen? Amen? Acts chapter two, beginning in verse 22. Fellow Israelites, listen to these words. This Jesus of Nazareth, was a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourself know. Though he was delivered up according to God, determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. God raised him up, ending the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by death. For David said of him, I saw the Lord ever before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. Moreover, my flesh will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to Hades or allow your Holy One to see decay. You have revealed the path of life to me. You will fill me with gladness in your presence. Brothers and sisters, I can confidently speak to you about the patriarch David. He's both dead and buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Since he was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn an oath to him to seat one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, He spoke concerning the resurrection of the Messiah. He was not abandoned in Hades, and his flesh did not experience decay. God has raised this Jesus. We are all witnesses of this. Therefore, since he has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out what you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, the Lord declares to my Lord, set at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Today, I want to remind you that Jesus Christ is the resurrected King. Because our Lord and Savior lives, there is hope and new life available to each and every one of you, no matter what. Let's pray. Father, thank you for my friends that have gathered here today. I pray a blessing on each and every one of them. We assemble along with 2 billion people across the planet today because we recognize that you have conquered the grave. And so we come today to celebrate, Lord, your victory. Thank you so much that you loved us enough to send your son to die on a cross. And thank you so much that you weren't satisfied with dying, that you came back to life so that we could live. Lord, I pray the weight of that fact will fall on us in such a way that we can't help but leave here changed. Lord, I pray that you'll speak through me today. I am a sinner. I am saved only by your grace. I am no better than any person in this room. I just pray, Lord, 
that they don't hear a word from me. I pray they hear a word directly from you. Holy Spirit, have your way in this place. As you stand there with your eyes closed and your head bowed, take a moment and pray for those around you. Pray for those that are watching online. Pray for the people that you know that are suffering. Pray for the Christians all around the world, especially those in persecution. Take a moment, pray for yourself. Father, speak to us. We're ready to hear what you have to say. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So Peter, he got up 50 days after Jesus had died. He had seen the resurrected Christ. They're in Jerusalem. Thousands of people are assembled. And the Holy Spirit comes on Peter to the point that he, he can't be quiet. He gets up in the middle of the street, and he begins to preach. This is an impromptu preaching. I mean, he's going off the cuff. He doesn't have any notes. I would struggle if I didn't have notes. He doesn't have any notes. And so he preaches what comes to his heart and mind. And so what's on Peter's mind the very first Christian sermon ever, 50 days after Jesus has been crucified. What does Peter talk most about? Now, if we go back and look at the passage I read to you, and it's a long passage, but I wanted you to see this. I read to you about 15, 14, 14 verses. 10 of those verses, they talk about the son of David. If you'll read, if you look back, this would be good homework for you. I just want you to see that when Peter talks about Jesus, first Christian sermon, the majority of his sermon is about David, this promised descendant of David who would sit on David's throne and defeat all of God's enemies, establishing a kingdom that would never be shaken, a beautiful kingdom. And so the point of of Peter's, the very first Christian sermon is about this son of David. Now I wanna give you a little backdrop on this title. I preached about this two weeks ago. So if you weren't here and this piques your interest, go back on our YouTube page. You can watch the whole sermon about the son of David. While you're there, don't forget to like and subscribe to our channel. Some of you have kids, you'll appreciate that. Uh, But David, son of David, is a title for a a promised king that would come, long-awaited king who would come and face down, take on all of God's enemies to the point that utterly destroy him to the point that he establishes a heavenly kingdom that will never be shaken, a kingdom marked by abundance and joy, peace and prosperity. And so uh, for thousands of years, they talked about, they thought about this son of David that would come. Now they came up with some shorthand titles for the son of David. The Hebrew shorthand title is the word Messiah. You're familiar with that word. It's in our passage today. Another Shorthand, the Greek shorthand for the title son of David is the word Christ. Anytime you read in the New Testament the word Messiah or the word Christ, it's referring to this title, the son of David, this long-awaited king. And so the idea is, and this is what I believe I would argue, this is the whole story. The Bible is telling one continuous story from Genesis to Revelation. And this is the story. In sum, God created a perfect place. He created the Garden of Eden. He created the earth. He stepped back from it. He inspected it. And what did he say of this place that he created? You know this. What did he say? It is what? It's good. It's good. It was so good to the point that after six days, God said, I've done, there's nothing that could be done to make this any better. It's as perfect as it could be. And then he rested. 
that word rested, it wasn't that God was tired. It was that his job was done. There was nothing more could be done to make it any better. It was perfect. But rebels came in. Satan was the first rebel. He came in and he started to disrupt and try to destroy God's perfect place. He started to disrupt and destroy God's people. And this rebel, these enemies came in and they wrecked havoc everywhere they go. And so the story of the Bible is God intervening, actively being a participant to save his people and his creation from these rebels. And he makes this promise that one day he's going to send a king. And this king is going to be such a glorious and powerful king that he's going to destroy everything that's trying to disrupt God's plan and purpose for his people and his creation to the point that he reestablishes this perfect place where we can all rest again because everything is as it should be. Don't you want to be in that place? Okay, and so uh, the question that, that Peter answers on that very first Christian sermon is that Jesus Christ is this long-awaited king who has come to defeat all of God's enemies and set up God's perfect kingdom. Now, some of you, this is the very first time you've ever heard of any of this. You, when you think about Jesus, when you think about Easter, you think about Jesus saving me from my sins, Jesus forgiving me so I can go to heaven. And those are all true things. Those are all great things. But that's less than all that God wants to communicate to us through this. Now, I want to prove it to you. John was one of Jesus's best friends. He wrote a biography about Jesus. The end of his biography, I want you to hear John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. This is how he concludes his biography about Jesus. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. He goes on to say that there were, there were so many powerful, miraculous things that Jesus did. If we wrote them all down, there wouldn't be enough books on the earth to describe all of the wonders that Jesus performed. But... These are written so that, why did he record all these miracles? Why do we have these biographies of Jesus? So that you may believe that Jesus is the what? Messiah, the Christ, the son of David, the long-awaited king who would come and defeat all of God's enemies and establish an eternal, unshakable, glorious kingdom. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. In other words, by joining ourselves, by abiding in Christ, by joining ourselves to Christ, that we can be part of this unshakable and glorious kingdom. The content, John argues, of Jesus's life proves that he's the Messiah, the Christ, the son of David, the long-awaited promised king, which is basically the same thing Peter says in the first Christian sermon. Let's look again, Acts chapter two, verse 22. Fellow Israelites, listen to these words. This Jesus of Nazareth, a guy that many of these people had had experiences with. They had heard the stories. They maybe seen him preach. Maybe they'd seen him heal people. Maybe they were there on the hill when he fed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. Was a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourself know. Peter says, the miracles, the wonders, the signs of Jesus Christ attest to the fact, they prove the fact that Jesus is the promised, long-awaited king. Now, we've been studying for over a year now the gospel of Mark. Thank you, ADD people, for sticking with us this long. We've still got about six months to go. I hope you're enjoying it as much as I am. But I'm learning a lot as we're digging into the gospel of Mark. Now, one of the things, the gospel of Mark is the very first biography of Jesus ever written. And as Mark sits down with a pen and a piece of paper, and he wants to begin telling this story about this remarkable man named Jesus, look at how he begins his biography, Mark chapter one, verse one. The beginning 
of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. There we see Christ, Son of David, the beginning of the gospel. Now that word gospel, many of you, if you've got any church experience, you, you would translate that word as good news. It is good news. But that's less than what it actually means. In Jesus' day, that was a Roman military political term. It was a term used when a king would go off to battle. And the king would go off to battle. He'd leave many of his citizens behind. Only our army would go with him. And so the people in the, in the kingdom, they would have to await uh, from the battlefield the news of what's going on in the battle. They didn't have Twitter or Instagram or uh, social media or newspaper or even CNN. They didn't have any of that. They just had to wait till somebody brought back some info from the battlefield. And so if the king won the battle, he would send back a herald. And this herald would pronounce the eungulion, the good news, the gospel. It sounds something like this. Behold, the gospel of Caesar Augustus, he has defeated the enemies and won us a great victory. And so Mark, the biographer of Jesus, sits down with pen and paper and he presents himself as the herald of Jesus Christ. And he is going to announce the gospel, the good news, the victory announcement. Jesus Christ has defeated all of the enemies. And that's what we've been studying in the gospel of Mark, which begs the question, who are the enemies that Jesus Christ waged war against? That's where I want to spend our t- most of our time today. I want to talk to you about the enemies of God's people, of God's plan, and God's purpose. These are all enemies that each and every one of you identify with. The first enemy is disasters. Now, you probably never thought about this before, but disasters are a rebellious phenomenon. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth And his very first step in creating this beautiful cosmos that he created, this beautiful creation, the very first step was to subdue chaos. The Bible says that the earth was formless and void. It was a a chaotic emptiness. Uh, Imagine a dark and raging sea, untamable, wild. But God separated the light from the dark, and it was the first day he brought order to the universe. And in bringing order to the universe, a beautiful garden sprouts up. And and this garden is marked by beauty and it's marked by abundance and it's marked by communion with God. But Adam and Eve rebelled. And in rebelling, one of the, uh, the consequences, one of the curses of the rebellion was thorns and thistles sprout up. What is a thorn and a thistle? It's a wild bush right? It's hard to tame. I've got some bush out here by the, the front of the building. I can't kill that thing. It's a like wild Kentucky bush. It grows everywhere. And that's what bushes do. That's what thorns and thistles, if you grow a garden, if you're a farmer, you know these things are terrible. You don't want to mess with these things, but they're untamable. And so uh, what we see is the creation follows suit of that. And we see disasters beginning to sprout up. There's earthquakes and there's hurricanes and there's tsunamis and there's tornadoes. And what a disaster does is it attempts to undo the beauty that God created. Isn't that what a disaster does? Uh, We love creation. We love the forest. We love the mountains. We love to go to the beach. We love to watch the sunset over the ocean. I don't know who can look at a sunset over an ocean and think that there is no God. How can you see the beauty of creation and think that all of this is an accident, right? But then you go to Campbellsville after the tornadoes this summer. And what you see is devastation. You see houses that took years and years, blood, sweat, and tears to build. Hundreds of thousands of dollars. And what took years to build, what took all their heart and soul to build, was ripped up and destroyed in a matter of seconds. That's a disaster for you, right? In Jesus' day, uh, his disciples and he were sailing on a boat in the middle of a sea. 
and a huge storm came up on the boat. It was a hurricane force storm. Now you got to remember that these disciples, many of them were fishermen. They grew up on the water. They'd been in countless storms before. They knew how to navigate a storm, but this storm was different. The winds beat and battered against this boat to the point that the boat was beginning to break apart and the disciples started freaking out. They looked around because they knew Jesus was a wonder worker, but they couldn't find Jesus anywhere. They went under the deck and they found Jesus asleep, which was shocking, right? Sometimes maybe you feel like Jesus is sleeping on you, but the truth of the matter is um, what scared them to death, it rocked Jesus to sleep because it was light work for him. They woke him up. And they said, Jesus, don't you care if we drown? Jesus walked up on the deck and he looked the storm in the face and he talked to the storm as if it was a rebellious person. And he said, shh, silent, be still. And immediately, immediately the storm subsided and the waters were clear as crystal and they made it to the other side. Jesus Christ by his life proved that he has power over the disasters. Another enemy of God's plan and purpose, contrary to what God wants to see in his creation, is disease. It's disease. I got a stomach bug not too long ago, and in the middle of the night, I prayed, Lord, just take me now. Some of you can identify with that. If you got the same stomach bug that I did, I am sorry. I am sorry, but it's brutal. There's nothing worse than being sick. What's worse than being sick is your kids being sick. There's nothing scarier than going to the doctor and then pulling out an x-ray of one of your organs and saying, this black spot right here is not supposed to be there. We need to run more tests. There's nothing scarier than that, is there? There are people in our church right now, my heart breaks for them because of the diagnosis they're getting, the pain that they perpetually experience. And sometimes it seems like I can't get healthy. I can't get whole. I'm always going to battle this. I'm always going to feel like this. It's overwhelming. The truth of the matter is disease is not part of, The decay of human is not part of God's original plan. That's not what he wanted. The farther we get away from the garden, the more quickly our bodies decay. You know, Adam lived to be 930 years old. Some of you thought you were old, 930 years. Abraham didn't have his first child till he was 80 years old. Moses didn't start his ministry until he was 80 years old. I'm a 40-year-old man. I just had my first son. My last son, Erica tells me. But I'm a 40-year-old. I had a baby, and people were already asking me if I'm the grandfather, okay? It's bad. Aging, decay, disease, not part of God's plan. Cancer, COVID, kidney stones, sciatica, schizophrenia, stomach bugs, all disease, all sickness. It is a rebel. It is an enemy of God's created order. Amen? We hate it. We despise it. There was a woman in Jesus's day and she had a bleeding issue. She'd been sick for 12 years. She went to every doctor that she could find. She spent all of her money She sold all of her possessions, just trying to get well. But no matter where she went, no matter what she did, she didn't get better. She only got worse. But then Jesus came to town and she'd heard the story of Jesus. And she thought, if I could just touch him, maybe that would help me. There was a huge crowd around him. So she had to kind of wiggle her way through the crowd and maybe crawl and stretch and and, and try and get there. And finally, she got to where she could reach Jesus, but he was about to be out of step. And so she reached out her hand and she grabbed just the hem of his robe. And the Bible says immediately, immediately that disease left her. Immediately, she was made completely whole and completely healthy because 
what Jesus did with a touch, what no one else could do. He has power over disease. Another enemy that we must face in this world is darkness. There is great evil at work in our world today, right? We see it all around us. Many of you, you talk to me about the concerns that you have for your children and your grandchildren and the world that they're going to grow up in. There are more slaves in our world today than at any point in history. Did you know that? There is human sacrifice still taking place today. We don't call it sacrifice. We call it abortion, but it's happening at alarming rates. There's evil empires still on the move today, threatening nuclear war if you don't do what they say or what they want. It's a scary world that we're living in. Subways and schools are shot up almost daily. Pimps and prostitutes and drug dealers line the streets of Winchester. And all the while, we have talking heads on TV. We have people that have millions of subscribers on YouTube saying things like this. Let's normalize sex work. Let's celebrate gender confusion. Let's sexualize and scandalize our children. It feels like darkness is winning the day, doesn't it? Daily, people are inventing ways of doing evil, and it seems like the world at large is celebrating, is cheering them on, is is happy about it. The darkness seems so great, and I feel so small. What can little old me and little old Winchester do? Now how you feel? What can we do to change this dark and dying world? There was a man in Jesus' day that was possessed by the power of a thousand demons. He's the most powerful demon in recorded history. And he was, he was so powerful that he terrorized an entire region, a region consisting of 10 cities, to the point that nobody was willing to even walk through this area where this demon lived. They tried everything they could to stop him. They chained him. He broke the chains. They led him out to the tombs, but he'd find his way back, and he would beat and terrorize people every time that he could. But then Jesus came to town. And this demon saw Jesus, and immediately, before Jesus even said a word, the demon came and he bowed at Jesus's feet and he begged for mercy. A few moments later at Jesus's command, the demon had fled the region and this demon possessed man was completely restored because Jesus Christ has power over the darkness. Acts chapter two, verse 22. Here's Peter's point. Fellow Israelites, listen to these words. This Jesus of Nazareth, was a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs. Jesus, by his life, he proved that he had power over disaster. He had power over disease. He had power over darkness, but there was still one enemy that he must face. It's the greatest enemy, the enemy that we all fear the most, death. Death. Don't you hate death? Hate going to a funeral? hate saying goodbye, hate the thought of looking at the inside of a coffin. Acts chapter two, verse 23, Peter continues with his sermon. He says, though he was delivered up according to God's plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and to kill him. On Good Friday, God allowed death to have its way with Jesus. They punched him. They struck him with a rod. They bound his hands. They stretched him over a whipping block to where the the skin on his back was pulled tight. They took an instrument, it's called a cat of nine tails. It's a whip about this long, 
has a wooden rod on it. At the end of that wooden rod are leather straps. Embedded in those straps are pieces of glass and bone and rock. They stretched him out over that block and held him as tight as they could. And they would take that whip and they would slam it on his back and then rip it off. They did this 39 times. Many people would die from this. All the skin on his back, all the tendons on his back, all the meat on his back would have been ripped off. Many people would lose a rib in this. Sometimes people, their, their side would be split open and their intestines would fall out. He lost all sorts of blood. They lifted him up after that. They put a crown of thorns on his head. And then they strapped a beam on his back and they said, I want you to carry that up a hill. He tried, but he didn't have the energy. So they had to grab another man and make him carry the cross, but Jesus led the way. He was determined to get to the top of Mount Calvary to die to win the victory for me and you. He got to the top of that hill. They stretched his arms out as far as they could and they nailed nine-inch spikes through his wrist and through his feet. And then they lifted that cross up and placed it in a hole to where Jesus was hanging there. Now, this is what happens when you hang like this. Your lungs don't have room to get air. And you have to lift yourself up in order to take a breath. A person can do that for a while. Sometimes it would take up to nine days for a person to die by crucifixion. But Jesus was so weak. He had lost so much blood. He had been beaten so badly. He was beyond recognition as a man. You look at his face and you weren't sure if that was a piece of meat or a man. So he kept reaching for the next breath. And eventually his body couldn't pull himself up anymore. And he hung there like this. In his lungs, they filled up with fluid. And he drowned on his own fluids. A few moments later, an expert executioner took a spear and they slammed it into his heart. The Bible says blood and water spilled out, confirming beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus Christ was dead. His friends, a few hours later, they pulled his body off the cross and they went and buried in the tomb, lay there for a day. On Saturday, the day after his crucifixion, it appeared as if death had won the victory. Jesus, he had power over disasters and over disease and over darkness, but it didn't look like he could save himself from his own death. But verse 24, God raised him up. Ending the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by death. Amen? On that silent Saturday, as the disciples mourned the loss of their friends, Jesus Christ made a journey to the region of the dead. And he got to the gates of hell and he kicked it in. He went and punched the devil in the mouth. He bound up the strong man and everything the devil tried to steal, everything the devil tried to destroy, Jesus Christ took it back. And he took with him the keys of life and death. And then he bust up out of the grave as the resurrected king. The Bible says that he has been given the name that's above every name, that at that name, every knee will bow, every tongue in heaven and on earth and under the earth, every force, every prince, every king, every queen, every celebrity, everybody that thinks they're anybody, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. My daughter asked me the other day, She said, Daddy, how do you know that we're worshiping the right God? 
you know, there's a lot of different religions out there. And they're all very sincere. They really believe what they believe. How do you know that we're worshiping the right God? And I said, listen, sweetie, the man that inspired all those other religions, I can go on Google Maps and show you where his tomb is. We can go and visit and put flowers out front of it. If you dig enough, you can get his bones out of there. But the man that I worship, his grave is empty. Amen. He's been risen from the grave. I worship a living savior, nobody else. No other religion. Jesus Christ is a resurrected king. He is worthy of all honor and glory and praise forever and ever. Amen. What should you do with that information? Let's look back at our text. David says, I saw the Lord ever before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. Moreover, my flesh will rest in hope because you will not abandon me. You have revealed the path of life to me. You will fill me with gladness in your presence. What should we do with this information, my friends? Believer. Verse 23, or verse 36 of Acts chapter 2. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Believer, this is what you need to do with this fact. Know with certainty that Jesus Christ, he was dead, but is now alive. He was buried, but he is now risen. He was crucified. He is now glorified. He is the Lord of all. He is the King of Kings. He is the long-awaited Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the promised king come to defeat all God's enemies, come to invite us into a perfect kingdom. And so friends, believers, those of you who trust in Jesus, those of you who put your hope in Jesus, do not despair. Do not despair. Are you here today in the face of disaster? And your life is spiraling out of control. There is chaos all around you. When it rains, it pours. You can't win for losing. Is that you today? Are you overwhelmed by the life that you're living? Listen to me. Be reminded today that you serve the water walker. And he will rise above the winds and the waves in your life. He will grab you by the hand. He will pull you out of the muck and mire. And he will get you to the other side. Because he has power over every disaster in your life. Amen? Are you here today? Are you here today fighting a disease? You've been to every doctor. Nobody gives you any answers. They want to refer you to another specialist who's going to refer you to another specialist who's going to prescribe you another medicine, what's going to require you to get prescribed another medicine. It just goes on and on and on. No relief, no relief, no relief. And you are worn out. You're tired of hurting. You're tired of being sick. You're tired of the same old, same old. Is that you today? Be reminded that you serve the great physician. And just one touch from him will make the blind man see, will make the deaf man to hear, will make the lame man to walk again because my Jesus has power over every disease. Are you here today? Are you here today battling the darkness in your life? And it just seems like the world keeps punching you in the face. You're tired of the injustice. You're tired of all the depravity in the world. You're tired of feeling like you're the only good person left. You're the only good person 
in your family. You're the only good person in your workplace. You're the only good person in this town or in this community. You feel all alone and you feel overwhelmed by the darkness. Is that you today? Be reminded that you serve the demon slayer. And the demons at the sight of Christ, they beg for mercy. When the light shines, the darkness has no choice but to flee. Greater is he that lives in you than he that lives in the world. No weapon formed against you will prosper. You serve the king who has power over all the darkness. Are you here today and death is killing you? You lost a loved one this year or in the last few years and it breaks your heart, they're not gonna be with you at Easter. Maybe you're scared to death of seeing the inside of a coffin yourself, dealing with your own morality. Be reminded today that you serve the resurrected king. And one bright day, he will wipe every tear from your eye. There will be no more pain. There'll be no more mourning. There'll be no more sadness. There'll be no more death because Jesus Christ will take all of God's enemies and ultimately throw them in the lake of fire. The old order of things will pass away. Behold, he will make all things new. He'll make all things right and nothing could be better. Jesus Christ is a grave robber. He's a resurrected king. As that's the good news of Easter Sunday, Jesus Christ has won the victory over every single one of our enemies. He says, in this world, you will have trouble. You will. There's no doubt about it. Don't want to go to a church service and they're going to tell you everything's going to be all right. Your roof's never going to leak. Your tires are never going to go flat. You're never going to get a cold. Your children will always listen to everything you say. All that stuff's a lie, isn't it? You will have trouble in this world. What does Jesus say? Take heart. Why? I have overcome the world. Because he overcame, you will overcome. Because he rose, you will rise. Because he lives, you will will live. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for loving us enough to send your son to die on a cross. Thank you for your power. That Lord, you raised him up from the grave, that he has power over disease, over disaster, over darkness, and even over death. All of our enemies have been defeated. And Lord, you're establishing a heavenly kingdom that you've invited us to be part of. Lord, I pray Holy Spirit, that you'll have your way in this moment, that everybody will be made right with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We're gonna stand together, sing a song of invitation and a song of celebration. If you're here today and you're just here out of uh, a courtesy or tradition, I want you to think about something. You're trying to do this life without Jesus, trying to do it on your own terms. How do you think that's going to work out for you? A lot of people say, I believe, but when it comes down to it, they're just trying to operate on their own strength, their own wisdom, their own will. Listen, friends, when the disaster comes, when the tornado comes rolling down, what are you going to do with the tornado? When the doctor holds up the sheet and points to you the mass, what are you going to do with that mass? When the world sends a nuclear weapon your way, what are you going to do with a nuclear weapon? What are you going to do with the inside of a coffin? Friends, under your own strength, you will be destroyed. If you try to do this life, if you try to do this existence without Jesus, 
It leads to destruction. There is no ifs, ands, or buts about it. You don't have to live this way any longer. Hear me. You don't. Look at Acts chapter 2, verse 37. This is how Peter ends his sermon. They heard all this. Jesus Christ is the son of David, the long-awaited promised king, come to set up a glorious kingdom. And they were pierced to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? We want to be part of this kingdom. We want to be a citizen in this kingdom and serve this king who has done this great thing. How do we do it? Peter says, repent. Repent and be baptized. Stop doing life your own way, under your own strength. You don't have to do that. Instead, die to yourself. Go through that watery grave of baptism and be raised to newness of life. And you, each one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, will be forgiven of all your sins. They'll all be washed away, forgotten of. God won't look at you as a rebel anymore. He won't look at you as an enemy anymore. You'll be a citizen. You'll be a friend. You'll be his children. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the same spirit that cast up those demons, the same spirit that made the blind people to see, the same spirit that walked on the water, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead can now be living in you, giving you the power to overcome all the enemies. Some of you are here today and you're thinking, but Jeff, you don't know who I am. You don't know what I've done. There's no way God will accept me into that kind of a kingdom. Look at verse 39. For this promise is for, what's that word say? For that promise is for who? For that promise is for who? Who's the you that Peter's talking about? Peter just said, you crucified the Lord. But there's a promise for you. If there's a promise for the people that nailed Jesus to a tree, isn't there a promise for you? for you and for your children and for all who are far off. You know what all means? It means all. How do you know? How do you know the Lord will receive me? Look at what Peter says. As many as the Lord our God will call. Friend, are you here today? Far from Jesus, you know it. You got everybody else fooled, but you know you're doing life on your own. You don't have to do it that way. How do you know that he's calling you? Can you feel it? Can you feel it in your heart right now? Him beckoning you to come. When I was 16 years old, I, I sat in that little country church and they started singing the altar song, the invitation song. It was just as I am. Now, if you grew up in church, you know, just as I am has about 17 verses. They sang every single one of those verses that Sunday, and praise God they did, because I fought for 16 verses. I fought, and I held on to that pew in front of me for dear life, because I thought to myself, God, there's no way that you can accept a person like me. I thought to myself, Lord, I know following you, I'm going to have to give up everything, and I don't know I'm ready for that. For 16 verses, he fought with me. He fought with me and he kept saying, Jeff, I want you. Jeff, I died for you. Jeff, I rose for you. Jeff, I'll forgive you. Jeff, I'll empower you. I've got more planned for you than you could ever imagine. Just come. And so finally, I let go of that pew and I walked up to that aisle. And let me tell you something that is the greatest moment in my life. 
Jesus has done more for me than I could spend eternity thanking him for. And that invitation is for you. Do you feel the call today? Listen to me. That is the king of glory. That is the resurrected king. And he is calling you by name. And he's saying, I will forgive you. I will accept you. I will wash all of your sins away. I will make you right. I will empower you to become the person that I created you to be. I will invite you into my heavenly kingdom and no one can snatch you from my hand. Just come. And so as we sing this song, if you're here today and you feel that call on your life, do not put off the worst, the best thing that could ever happen to you. Do not put it off. Come and talk to me. I'm going to be standing right here. I want to pray with you. I want to tell you about your next steps. As we sing this song, be reminded of the body and blood of Christ that has won the victory over every single one of our enemies. If you haven't taken communion, the emblems are in the back. As we sing this song, come.